In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to the first episode of Two Shrinks and a Microphone. I'm Hunter Mulcair. And I'm Amy Donaldson. And this is a podcast where we aim to discuss different pieces of psychological research from the perspective of clinicians working in the field. And along the way, we want to provide a fun and easy to understand discussion about issues therapists encounter in their day-to-day work and how we attempt to resolve them. In doing so, we want to peel back some of the mysterious layers of psychological therapy, especially for non-therapist listeners. For those of you working as a therapist or hoping to be one, hopefully listening to us talk will be some easy continuing professional development for you. And we'll probably throw in some unvarnished commentary about stylistic elements of how articles are written because, hey, let's face it, we're judgmental. So <laughs> before we start, I'm a, a, I am should introduce myself. Uh, I'm a psychologist and I primarily work with medically unwell patients. So in the last six years or so, I've been working with oncology patients, so cancer patients, um, before that, I worked in general practice and also in sort of drug and alcohol settings. Amy? I've been working in this field for about five years, mainly with children and adolescents, uh, a lot of whom have experienced trauma, so refugees and people from Australia. Uh, I have an interest in trauma and been working from a neurobiological perspective, and I'm also studying for my master's in clinical psychology. So the question that we would like to ask on the pod is, is this a useful piece of research for me as a clinician? Amy, tell us about the piece of research you want to discuss. So the article that I've looked at is called Discussed Proneness Predicts Obsessive Compulsive Disorder Symptoms Severity in a Clinical Sample of Youth. Distinctions from Media Type. Okay. Mouthful. (laughs) And where's that published? That's published in the Journal of Affective Disorders uh, earlier this year. Uh, So this article... Uh, looked at young people who were experiencing obsessive compulsive disorder. For those of you who might not know, obsessive compulsive disorder is a condition where people have distressing thoughts uh, and images come into their head involuntarily. And then to manage these, they try and compensate with various activities. So that could be uh, repetitive behaviours, cleaning, um, washing themselves, that sort of thing. So this research looked at whether there was a relationship between a tendency to feel disgust and OCD symptoms. So in the past, they found that adults uh, experience who experience OCD often then have um, a propensity to feel disgust that's more intense than those who don't, and that also they have a tendency to feel negative symptoms. Uh, negative emotional symptoms, so things like uh, depression, sadness, anger, things like that. And that the experience of disgust and negative emotion is related to the severity of their symptoms. So uh, this hasn't been looked at in young people, and so the authors were curious to see whether the dynamic worked in the same way or whether there was something different for um, young sufferers of this disease. So the authors thought that uh, it 
this phenomenon develops mainly through a genetic predisposition within um, socialisation aspects so that young people and infants and children see the people around them responding with disgust mm-hmm. and then they internalise this response and experience disgust more often. So as we're, as we're growing up, we look to these people to shape how we should be responding to the world. So uh, to look at this, they spoke to uh, 471 young people who were living in a residential treatment facility yeah. uh, for mental health concerns. And they were all aged between 12 and 18, and about half were female. Half were also diagnosed with OCD as their primary diagnosis. And then the rest had a mixture of mood disorders, anxiety disorders, and then other conditions like um, eating disorders, um, autism, tics, yeah, right. like that. Just, just for the listeners there, that's a huge clinical, what we call Absolutely. a huge clinical sample. Yeah. So they tested everyone who arrived at the treatment facility and, <clears throat> and then um, offered them a chance to participate in the research. So as part of the battery of tests, they administered five which were used in this research. Uh, the first one is the Y box, which is the children's Yale Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale. Uh, they also administered the Child Disgust Scale, the Anxiety Sensitivity Index, the Moods and Feelings Questionnaire, which looks at negative affect and has a strong relationship to depression, and the SCARED, the Screen for Child Anxiety Related Emotional Disorders, which is all about anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think they just, they came up with the acronym and then named the questionnaire? They would have had to. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it was a lucky accident. (laughs) And not at all daunting for children to fill in something titled scared. No. No. (laughs) So uh, the researchers used structural equation modelling to look at predictors of OCD symptom severity and to distinguish whether uh, the proneness to experience disgust was separately influencing symptoms to negative affect. So whether they worked together or separately. To say that again, sorry. Yeah, so it it looked at whether proneness to experience disgust. So feeling feeling feeling, feeling gross about something. Feel like that, yeah, yep. Which they conceptualized as a sort of like a personality trait, something that's there throughout your lifespan, doesn't change much. It's just yep. a tendency that you have. Yeah whether that separately influenced symptoms. So symptoms being like being checking, cleaning, checking, washing. Cleaning, intrusiveness kind of, of, of distressing images. Yep. Yeah. To ne- a tendency to have negative affect, so sadness, anger, other, other negative emotions. Yep. Yep. So. What did they find? They found that... Unlike with the adult population, where both negative affect and disgust predicted symptoms, they found that it was only disgust that predicted symptoms in young people. Yeah, right. Um, And that the role that negative affect had was that people who experienced more negative affect then experienced more disgust and then experienced more symptoms. They had a mediating effect rather than a direct link. That sort of sits in the middle. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Yeah. And so they also compared the two groups. 
so those who were diagnosed with OCD and those who weren't. And interestingly, the ones who weren't diagnosed with OCD had a stronger link between disgust and any symptoms of OCD than those who had the disorder. Right. I'm pulling a funny face. Yes. <laughs> it's not what you'd expect. It's, I, no. would, I would have thought you would, you would look at it the other way around. Exactly. So what they, they wondered, they highlighted that it was an area that needs to be looked into further, but they wondered whether perhaps there were other factors that influenced the development of the entire condition. Yeah. So, for example, the genetic component perhaps might be larger. So is the genetic component, is OCD something that's known to have a higher genetic loading than, say, some of the other disorders? Not that I know of. Yeah. I think... Anxiety disorders have a genetic component that um, OCD fits into that category, well, but you, well, specifically. Well, I think well, in the recent in the recent DSM, in the it, recent doesn't DSM it doesn't. So the D, the DSM for listeners is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. Yeah. Um, it's up to version five. It's basically the big book of psychiatric disorders, and in the most recent version, they classed OCD into separate. into a separate uh, class of disorders. Was previously in DSM four. Uh, OCD fell under anxiety disorders. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a bit unknown why why that's happening yeah. and why those patterns were found. Uh, they still found higher amounts of OCD symptoms and of disgust and of negative affect in the group with OCD. Yeah. Um, but just the predictive nature of it wasn't as high. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess I'm curious to see what you think. Do you think that this research would be helpful in practice? I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense. Um, I mean, I'm always of this, of this viewpoint that good research is often something that kind of confirms or disconfirms something that, you know, is kind of just lo is logical or, mm. or illogical, if, if you follow my um, reasoning there, like sort of. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense that disgust would be uh, play a role in OCD mm. and that you would then, you would also see it in youth as well as in adults. Yeah. Be interested, interested. So it's it was a slightly different set of findings yeah. for the youth than for the adults? Yeah, so the adults' um, negative affect was uh, predictive of OCD symptoms yeah. on its own and in youth that wasn't the case. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wonder whether that, I wonder whether that sort of speaks to the fact that um, over time, OCD symptoms kind of come conditioned to any kind of negative affect, and then, and then, so you would then, as an adult, any kind of negative feeling, you might then use your compulsive mm, behaviour to manage it. To manage it. Yeah. And whereas, whereas in a in a a younger person, they haven't had that longer entrenched period of disorder and so therefore you perhaps you wouldn't see that association yeah. and I also i wondered as well about whether um you know often when people have conditions that last for quite a while there's that sort of grief and sadness about having those conditions and whether perhaps for adults who they've had it for a longer period there's a bit of that you know negative affect towards the disorder and more generally whether that plays a part yeah like so like they they just more pervasively unhappy mm, yeah yeah and then it, it's just sort of entrenched, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. I did wonder as well, given that the, the current treatment for OCD really focuses on behavioural strategies, so reducing the amount of times that you wash or sweat, things like that. 
I wonder whether perhaps it's not it identifies a different avenue for treatment, whether perhaps you can come up with alternative ways of dealing with disgust and interpreting disgust mm. rather than going straight to the behaviour. Yeah. Well, I mean, my – look, I mean, I'd go straight on the record and say that I've uh, – I'm definitely not an expert in OCD. No, and, and And I would, I would strongly – encourage any person who has OCD who's wanting treatment to go to a, a specialist in OCD because yeah. it's because it's just a very complicated disorder and mm. it's very very and a couple of times I've come across it and attempted to treat it um, it's been very challenging to do um, uh, and, and and challenging to manage even when I went and got special supervision just because I don't have the experience mm. um, now there was a reason why I was talking about all this. it's just <laughs> Completely escaped yeah. me for the targets moment. for treatment. Targets, oh yeah, targets for treatment. So I mean, so so with all that proviso, um, what I my understanding is that cognitive approaches, which mm. is like, uh, you know, talk to me about this feeling of disgust, and you know, it's, it's a really irrational feeling, and yeah, the way you might approach that as a therapist through talking therapy, um, that doesn't seem like like to, to deal with the obsessional element of. OCD doesn't doesn't work with mm. behavioural stuff does, which is like, okay, you check you check the tap ten times, let's reduce that to five, let's reduce that to two. Yeah, that's the thing that actually works. Sort of desensitisation. Desensitise and like, and you can try, <coughs> you can, and if you try and logically reason out with someone with OCD, it's it's just it doesn't work. It's really like a waste of time. Mm. Um, so, um, and 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 it doesn't do them any good either. No. So, um. So, I mean, but you would wonder whether maybe with a younger person with a, like a less entrenched thing yeah. that maybe there's there's some kind of avenue there. Yeah, some sort of um, early intervention or maybe even screening for risk of developing that. So mm. if you have someone who shows interest in receiving treatment, say for a, a, a feeling of anxiety or something comes along with it, sort of anxiety about the thoughts and feelings that are coming in, yep. whether perhaps you could screen for their level of disgust that they were feeling and kind of get in there before the disorder develops. I don't know. Yeah. Could be. Could be. Yes. Other thoughts? Uh, what do you, you reckon is useful about this piece? Well, not useful. Um, I think, like you, I don't have a huge amount of experience working with people with OCD and I'm quite curious of those kind of underlying mechanisms. So for me, it was sort of thinking about it in a different way. Yeah. Um, and thinking about how people might interpret the thoughts and images and things that, that come to them. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and how, how that would then influence their behaviour. So for me, it was more of a conceptual shift than a um, practical. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, if you come across uh, OCD, and so I mean, I, I've the most recent encounters I've had with OCD have been working in an oncology setting where people are getting treatment for cancer and then um, it's picked up that they're very, very anxious and then you, you talk to them, you do an assessment with them and it, it's clear that they've got OCD that they've either tried to treat or they've never treated. And it's a, it can be an incredibly disabling mm. condition and very, very perplexing. Um, yeah. Like some of it, like, you know, there's kind of like, oh, did I leave the iron on and, and stuff like that? Like, there's a level which you can kind of associate with, but then 
the extent to some of the compulsions that people can go through. Yeah, the amount of hours that they can spend in each day. Yeah. Checking. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so I mean, I, I worked with an individual and they had driven between two cities. It was probably like an hour's drive, and had along the way thought that they'd seen a container on the side of the road that had been opened, and this individual was worried about contamination. Mm-hmm. And so this individual then redrove that hour-long trip yeah. to check to see whether he might have been exposed to something. Something dangerous. So, I mean, and that's the most extreme example I've ever come across, but mm. that that can kind of get to the the, the, the spectrum of like, and so I think under, having some kind of understanding of like, well, how come people would do that? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of interesting. I've you... certainly um, come across a couple of kids who the amount of time that it's taken them, say, to get ready to school for school because they have to repeat things over and over yeah. again. You know, they're having to get up at four or five mm. in the morning to be able to fit in those three hours worth of repeated showering or repeated dressing to make sure that everything's done in the same order. So the impact on their general health and their mental health from yeah. all of that is quite pervasive. And then interesting to think about, like, well, where where does this disgust come from? Yeah. And like, what's the what's the family of origin role with that? Mm. Um, uh, because the family of origin can often be very instrumental in um, uh, inadvertently help allowing obsessive compulsive symptoms to uh, develop or maintain. Yeah, sort or of normalising those. Yeah, or you know, the parents want to be helpful, mm. and and so they try and be helpful, but then uh, accidentally kind of reinforce it or something. Yeah. Shall I go on to my one? Yeah, sure. So the article I wanted to talk about, I've. Prepared a lot for it, <laughs> uh, probably not quite as succinct as Amy. Um, so the title of it is called uh, The Cause of My Cancer, Beliefs About Cause Amongst Breast Cancer Patients and Survivors Who Do and Do Not Seek Inter- Integrative Oncology Care. The lead author is uh, Robin uh, M. Robin Anderson from uh, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre in Seattle. This is published in uh, my favourite journal psycho-oncology and it was published earlier this year so the just to give you a bit of a background there's a couple of reasons why i wanted to talk about this uh paper but i'll give you a bit of background so the authors were interested in breast cancer patients beliefs about what causes cancer and whether these beliefs are associated with attending alternative oncology treatment centers so in this they call it integrative oncology centers and they talk about them being run by naturopathic doctors offering what the oncology literature calls complementary or alternative medical treatments. And this was in uh, Washington State, USA, so the northwestern part. Um, and patients attending these clinics were also having conventional, so quote-unquote normal oncology treatment mm-hmm. for their breast cancer, as well as seeking out, say, natro, naturopathic. So medical treatment as well. Yeah, well, as well as kind of, you know, whatever naturopath kind yeah. of stuff does. So this study has its background in the fact that scientists are continually finding new risk factors for mm-hmm. cancer. Complementary alternative medicine use in oncology has increased over time. Like patients are very, very interested in it. Yeah. Um, and uh, well, as well as theoretical work um, using what's called the common sense model of 
illness, which has this understanding that uh, beliefs about cause and cure of a particular condition will predict what's called self-regulatory behavior by patients and acceptance of patients. So basically, like, you know, if you have a particular understanding of what causes or might fix your treatment, uh, your, your condition, that will influence whether you uh, take up a treatment or not. It makes sense. Which, which, which is in terms of the common sense model, mm. right? Like it's, it's not too complicated. So in their method, what they did is they got uh, 552 breast cancer patients and they got half, well, 44% attending uh, integrative oncology clinic and the other half were just having conventional cancer care. Um, just under half were less than nine months post-diagnosis for breast cancer. So uh, it's a bit of an odd choice to talk about nine months, but um, I'm not sure why they did that. But if you're nine months or less from a breast cancer treatment, odds on you're having or just recently had um, oncology treatment. So depending on the type of cancer that you, breast cancer you've got, like um, you, you might have several months of chemotherapy and then you might have uh, five weeks of radiotherapy and then potentially going, going on tamoxifen or something like that. So, um, so, I mean, and it's always important with oncology studies to kind of know, are these people that are currently under treatment or not? Um, because that, that can kind of have impacts on results. And so chiefly they asked women about theories about the cause of their cancer. So it was a qualitative study. Um, and so they asked patients to just respond like in a written way rather than sort of having them check a predetermined questionnaire, predetermined list. And so these responses were coded by two researchers. And so they identified six main codes. And I, I'll just quickly run through them. So the code, the genetics or family history was one of the, one of the ways in which people talked about, oh, you know, well, you know, I've got genetic family history, mm-hmm. stress and coping. So beliefs about stress and coping causing their cancer. Exposure to toxins. Now, this, there was a huge list of these. People thought, you know, alcohol, smoking, drugs, mm-hmm. hormone replacement therapy, chemicals and food. Um, the fourth one was epidemi- epidemiological or lifestyle risk factors. So, you know, oh, my age, age mm-hmm. childbirth, um, you know, when, they, when, they, when the women had children, diet, things like that. Random chance or other. And so they didn't report percentages for each group, but... Um, which probably relates to the qualitative nature yeah. of, the, of the study. Um, but so they, you know, a th- basically a third did say genetics of family history, a third said stress and coping, 17% said epidemiological factors, random chance, 17%. What they, so the first part of, that I want to talk about is so they, they compared the ca- causes of cancer codes between the two groups. So the people who had quote unquote normal conventional care versus mm-hmm. those attending integrative oncology centers are seeking out alternative therapies or complementary therapies. And so what they found was that integrative, those attending sort of the integrative oncology center mentioned stress and coping and multiple causes for cancer more often than those attending conventional treatment. So they're like, and and they would mention that they, um, they mentioned randomness less often as a cause. So they were kind of ascribing like I got breast cancer and uh, they were more likely to say, and it was because I got stressed yeah. or because of poor coping or something like yeah. that. Um, and they were less likely to say, well, you know, it's just a random event that happens and shit happens essentially. Yeah. So 
or stuff happens. Um, so methodologically, uh, it's not a great thing to compare percentages using qualitative data. I'll spare, yeah. spare listeners um, diatribes <laughs> about that. It's, it's quite complicated, but you know, just essentially, like if you you would get different answers um, if you said gave people a list, uh, a blank piece of paper and say, what are the lists, what are the reasons for your cancer versus if you gave people a questionnaire with a list of 10 possible causes and got them to tick, right? You would get, you, uh, odds on you would get a different response. Despite that methodological finding, you know, I think it's kind of interesting, you know, and then so the authors just suggest that given, you know, alternative treatments might, they, they suggest that alternative treatments might be attractive to people who think that stress and coping cause the cancer because, these, you know, often alternative treatments uh, for cancer stuff focus on stress and coping as yeah. part of a part of those activities, you know, and they, and they want to reduce stress. They also suggest that, you know, people seeking to supplement their care with these kinds of treatments might be less comfortable with multiple uh, rather than single causes for events, which, is, which might be why they less frequently talk about randomness as a cause for their yeah. things. So. I mean, personally, I'd be thinking there's a strong relation here between an individual's beliefs about control and ability to tolerate uncertainty and that this would uh, seek, it would drive seeking out extra alternative treatments. You know, this kind of thing of like pe people who, like, again, like what you're talking about, there's a personality style or yeah. tendency to kind of, you know, no, I, you know, it must have been caused by this problem, must yeah. be caused by this, rather than kind of having the ability to kind of go well you know bad stuff happens and yeah. this kind of stuff um and those uh, single cause statements would be less likely to come from a, a medical specialist yes that's yeah. right because you know the reality is why per, why does you know why does one person get a type you know an illness versus another it's, it's very complicated mm. i mean you could sort of say you know in cancer smoking causes lung cancer yes but why does one smoker get lung cancer at 50 and one person gets it at 94 yeah. right like um you know it, it's it's so, so so complicated so um and and the doctors themselves would say look we don't really understand it mm. um you know as a clinician you know i think that this is kind of useful it's a little useful in that you know if you've got someone who's particularly anxious they may be seeking out alternative treatments and so it'd be interesting to kind of actually ask about that, use that as a screening mm. kind of thing. Um, or if you realise they're seeking out alternative treatments, you might ask about anxiety and control, explore that with them. Um, and actually sort of dovetailing with what you were talking about with your article, you know, if you've got patients who are spending a large amount of time seeking out alternative treatments, psychologically, you know, that can be quite harmful for a person. Yeah. I'm, I'm all for someone taking control of their treatment. They can believe what they want to believe. Mm. But... When someone's using all their time, um, maybe a lot of money, yeah. you know, it becomes like a safety behavior in a sort of obsessive compulsive kind of way. Mm. Um, and so that's a behavior that someone does to reduce anxiety, but in the process actually maintains that anxiety. Yeah. You know, they're, they're constantly engaged with this idea of like, oh my gosh, I've got cancer and I've got to, I've got to make sure I'm not too stressed or I've got to make sure I've got to eat organic pomegranates or, or those kinds of things yeah. rather than say, learning to sit with their anxiety or engage in more helpful things like yeah. spending time with their family or 
reading a book or going out and living their life, yeah. you know, that kind Things of stuff. Things that actually improve their physical well-being. Yeah, yeah, you know, like that kind of stuff. You know, and there's a certain kind of sense of, well, you know, if you've got cancer, you still need to go and live your life. Yeah. And actually the best thing for people is actually to get them to re-engage in, in, in doing what they're doing. So, I mean, I think that that's kind of interesting. But what I was really struck by, and as a clinician working in oncology, you probably half of my patients over time have been breast cancer patients mm-hmm. um, for various different reasons. And the high proportion in the study was saying that stress and coping caused their cancer. So like a third. Yeah. And that third of this study said, oh, stress and coping caused my cancer. And that fits with a lot of my per- like personal clinical experience working with this group of patients who just so often blame themselves for their mm-hmm. cancer. So... What I thought I'd just quickly do would be just to read a couple of the quotes and then kind of just talk about it a bit more. But yeah. so this is because the stress and coping thing is such a pre- prevalent belief in society. Our oh, stress and coping caused my cancer. Yeah. And a lot of people may be listening to this podcast and thinking, no, you know, no, don't, criti- don't criticize that. But, but let, me just, let me just read you a couple of quotes and then kind of go into it. So one of the patients they quote saying, See, uh, she explained that her cancer was caused when, quote, I realized my husband did not love me anything like I loved him and my heart was broken and I believe the terrible sadness caused my cancer. Another one, which was, I believe I got cancer because of the stress and the inability to deal with negative emotional issues, keeping everything bottled up and ignoring difficult, emotional, challenging situations. And another one, my theory is stress. I didn't make time for myself. I didn't get enough sleep. I was constantly stressed and did not take care of myself. So I, I hear those things and I hear individuals in pain, yeah. emotional pain and seek, you know, wanting to ascribe, ascribe or subscribe a cause to something. Trying to find an answer for something that isn't necessarily answerable. Yeah, like why did this happen to yeah. me? You know, and that's a, you know, where humans are mean making... Uh, creatures so what what's interesting and i I can't state this i'll I'll try and state this really clearly but the belief that cancer is caused by stress or and or poor coping if it's not backed up by the available evidence or in particularly in the way that these individuals are talking about it is not it's just not backed up by the available evidence so this may come as a surprise to people listening because it's a common belief and you often see it when Famous people get cancer, they cite it as a cause. I think Michael, mm-hmm. is it Michael Douglas, he got like a yeah. head and neck cancer. And he, he said, oh, stress. Yeah. And he was a heavy drink. It was probably more the fact that he had a drinking problem. Yeah. But um, so it's not backed up. So look, I looked up a few of the sources just to kind of state the facts. Now, I don't think I'm going to change anyone's minds, but I think it's just interesting. So on the Cancer Council Victoria website, stress is not listed as a risk factor for developing breast cancer. On the National Institute of Health website, which is an American prestigious organization, they say, although stress can cause a number of physical problems, health problems, the evidence that, that stress can cause cancer is weak. Some studies have indicated a link between various psychological factors and increased risk of developing cancer, but others have not. They also go on to say there's no evidence that successful management of psychological stress improves cancer survival. Which is this sort of dovetail belief of like, well, now I've got cancer. If I am not stressed, then it will improve. It will improve. Yeah. Which you know, try telling a 
cancer patient not to be stressed. Yeah. Um, tall order. Yeah, tall order. Yeah. And uh, not that helpful, really. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to just indulge me for one second and just talk about one extra study. Mm-hmm. So a recent study, 2016, by Shoemaker et al. in a journal Breast Cancer Research. They studied 106,000 women prospectively in the United Kingdom. So women who didn't have breast cancer followed them over time. The gold standard study, if you're looking to whether exposure causes something. And stress was measured by perceived frequency of stress, experience of adverse life events, and bereavement at young ages. I won't go into detail about the results, but the summary was in this large perspective study, there was no consistent evidence that self-reported frequency of stress and experience of adverse life effects uh, affected subsequent breast cancer risk. So, And the, the couple of raised risks that they found were in women who were bereaved of a mother during childhood or adolescence, mm-hmm. and they seemed to think that those increased risks were probably actually just more to do with familial susceptibility. Yeah. So... That's kind of where it's like a really, really brief pricey. I'm sure the research is much more complicated than that. But really, as a clinician, what I say is the evidence between the link between stress and breast cancer is just not there. And all and what I say is like, if there is a link, the link is so weak given the findings so far that it's probably... And prob- perhaps, I guess the thing that I think of when I hear that is that perhaps, again, it's sort of a mediating... So you feel stressed, so some people cope with that by smoking or by in, in engaging in behaviours that are mm. actually risky and mm-hmm. that are linked yeah. to cancer. But it's sort of um, more acceptable to ourselves to say it's stress than... Yeah, yeah. And, and, and like psychologically, like it's a really interesting question, like, like why do people blame themselves for yeah. this horrible event? Absolutely. Um, you know, and you would think that saying to, you know, and I've said to a number of patients at the time, like, you know, we don't think that stress causes breast cancer. Yeah. And um, in some cases you get this kind of relief, but for most often, like, that's a very, very difficult uh, belief to shift. Yeah. Um, so this this frustrates and fascinates me as a clinician. Um, my theory leads to a sense of control which is helpful in explaining how something awful could happen. So blaming yourself about cancer or any kind of traumatic event is quite harmful. Mm. You know, they feel guilty about what's happened. They blame themselves. They run themselves down about this. And, you know, that can drive feeling depressed, those kinds of things. But, um, you know, I think it's kind of like it helps them feel a bit more in control, helps them to explain the world. Yeah, it's preferable to not understanding what's happening to you. Yeah, that's it. Like, yeah. you know, and it's quite harmful. Like, it's quite, you can imagine how destabilizing you say, well, look, hang on, you live in the world and shit can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, you know, that, it feels much more dangerous to yeah. be in that world. So, I mean, ethically, I'm okay with people believing what they want to believe, but I do, I, I personally find that frustrating. That's erroneous and, uh, like, based on erroneous beliefs. And in many, in some cases, we, we see it in the hospitals where it will impact on their treatment decisions where people will have a treatable cancer that they don't get optimally treated yeah, or they won't even get treated at all. Yeah. Um, and, uh, in that they'll turn down a medical approach in favour of something that yeah. addresses what they perceive as yeah. the cause. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, like it, and it's 
interesting to you know ethically as a therapist mm. like um it's not my job to tell someone to go and do a particular type of treatment yeah um really value autonomy and people making up their own minds <laughs> but but then you know there's an ethical clash there which yeah. is like like if this is based on something just wrong like or like or not doesn't fit with our available evidence yeah. like ethically um you know, it could be harmful yeah it could be harmful or like most likely it is then it's you know i think you're also in dubious waters about kind of encouraging them to to go along with it so and challenging their belief when someone's really strongly holding oh you know look i don't need to do that treatment i will i'm just going to go and live a stress-free life which i had one patient say to me um you know that's a very difficult place to sit as a therapist absolutely Um, um so no i think this is a useful i found this a useful paper to look at because it just really spoke to me as some of the some of the experiences i've had yeah i think the authors perhaps perhaps could have gone into a bit more of theory as to why people do do not choose or think this way and stuff like that. And a pet peeve, they included the response rate to the study in the method section. It's, not re- okay. it's in the results section, people. <laughs> I think that's fair. That's, I think that's fair. We're gonna have a quick break and we'll come back afterwards. Yeah. You'll listen to sh- two shrinks and a microphone. Intuition. Intuition which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. You are listening to Two Shrinks and a Microphone podcast. There is more great stuff coming up. But remember, if you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you can, leave a written review. If you like the show, then please subscribe. If you have any suggestions about topics for the show or if you want to send some feedback, you can email us on twoshrinkspod at gmail.com. Back to the show. And we're back. So uh, we've done our serious discussion. <laughs> um, and what we want to do at the end of each podcast is to do a, a segment that currently we're going to call Things I Came Across. The background to this, did you want to explain it or shall I? Well, the general idea was that often when you're looking at different research that has come up or you browsing through a newspaper, you come across things that kind of catch your eye that are a bit odd. They don't necessarily feel like they fit with what you're doing in your job, but they interest you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, I, I, I mean, a couple of examples off the top of my head. It's like I was doing, I can't even remember what literature search I was doing, but, uh, you know, and there was some article about organizational psychology and looking at NASA and its responses to the Challenger disasters. So that's when the oh. shuttle blew up yeah. um, and kind of looking at kind of what problems were in the organization that may have led to them, you know, overlooking some stuff and then leading to the disaster, like, oh. you know, completely unrelated to whatever boring social yeah. psychology subject. I was there. And I yeah. never read it. I, should, I really, I should, maybe I should go back and read it. Yeah. 
Can you think of anything off the top of your head? Um, I often end up stumbling across things to do with, with media, so theories about characters or about, um, you know, parallels between um, different TV shows and depictions of, of mental illness. Yeah. Things like that where I'm kind of just... Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 curious. Yeah, really, really curious that kind of stuff. So, uh, did you find anything this week? Did you... No, I got completely overwhelmed and found so many things that I was lost in indecision. <laughs> All right. Well, so look, I'll, 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 um, I'm going to go. I'll talk about this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll try and do it uh, quickly. Uh, it, it comes from a journal which I'd not not come across before it's called theoretical issues in ergonomic science and uh, published in 2016 uh the lead author itself is curious yes the, the lead author is um a gentleman called guy walk and uh, there's a couple other things so the title of the article is what the death star can tell us about ergonomic ergonomic methods <laughs> brilliant so uh, so i'll read you i'll read you uh just a little bit uh, of the abstract Imagine having to identify a critical flaw in a highly complex planetoid-sized orbital battle station under extreme time pressure and with no clear idea at the outset where the vulnerability will lie. This is the challenge faced by the Rebel Alliance in the film Star Wars. So the first option presented in this paper is to employ traditional error identification methods of the sort of the sort contemporaneous with the film's release in 1977 and still in widespread use today. The second option is to use a systems-based method to model the Death Star's functional constraints and affordances and use this to assess the system's resilience. And uh, so they, <laughs> so they're basically they're looking at two ways at kind of identifying problems within an organisation, yep. uh, an older version and a newer version and using Star Wars as a, um, I guess, like an example. A mechanism. A mechanism. <laughs> Look, I mean, the, and then they talk about, you know, the, the second uh, systems-based method, the, the systems-based method they use, the more recent one is, is was more effective at identifying the thing. But, uh, you know, wh- what I really enjoyed about this article was just that they, they, they took, like, something pop culture and then they really just ran with it. Like, yeah. they really just went right for, like, um, you know, we're going to have some fun with it. But they actually kind of like adhered to their principles and stuff like that. Like, I don't know anything about ergonomics or anything like that. So I'm not, I'm not going to pretend to discuss it and know anything about talking about it. But I thought I would just read out, just read a couple of parts of the, of the, of the article that I just thought were just like showed how much fun they were having, but also it's sort of interesting. This analysis, which began as amusing aside, has grown considerably as, as it was discovered just how well the film known, the film franchise was across all disciplines, especially engineering. <laughs> As a vehicle for communicating complex ergonomic ideas, it has become unsurpassed in our experience and we're not alone in this. Researchers have used Star Wars to teach complex topics in psychiatry because it's well known to students, registrars and consultants alike. It's facilitated examination of how people interact with political philosophy. It has contributed to better understanding of the behavioural processes underlying immersion in virtual worlds. And a surgical assessment of Darth Vader's respiratory difficulties informs learning and teaching in pneumology. Um, and that uh, is an article using Darth Vader as a case study on pulmonary pathophysiology. If papers in other disciplines are happy to provide a clinical diagnosis of the lead character Anakin Skywalker's borderline personality disorder and to use Jabba the Hutt as a visual metaphor for nuclear, mi- 
migration in cellular biology in a paper describing how Star Wars can be used to communicate complex ideas about ergonomics, resilience, and the burgeoning topic of civil engineering systems begins to seem quite sensible. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's well worth to read. Um, they, they really had a lot of fun with it and, um, you know, they recruited, like they used like some kind of super fan questionnaire to pick the people who were going to be involved in the... Excellent. So everyone was passionate. About it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, in a couple of a couple of really um, a couple of final notes to uh, think about, they uh, they're talking about ethical uh, attaining ethical clearance to do a study, yeah. um, which is you know important part of any study. You have to get usually get that cleared by you know your institution's ethical board and that kind of stuff because they have a lot of paperwork. In the film, the full technical readout of Death Star was obtained by rebel spies, many of whom lost their lives in the attempt. And as such, ethical approval for a true replication was not forthcoming from the host institutions. <laughs> uh, and they, 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 um, they end up, they, they uh, close off the article with some, some recommendations. And one of them is, And to the Imperial Empire, should a more resilient and jointly optimised Death Star become necessary in the future, this may or may not require grates to be fitted over all thermal exhaust ports. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. So that's all we have time for today on Two Shrinks and a Podcast. Um, uh, Thanks for listening in. Yeah, and we'll catch up with you next time. (laughs) See you later. See you.